This is Joseph Gervasi. I am here with Alan Crawford, David Kessler, and Ben Warfield uh, of the Pine Barrens documentary. Uh, today is October 3rd, 2016. Recording this interview at my home in the Roxborough neighborhood of Philadelphia, and this is part of Loud Fast Philly. Hello, gentlemen. Hello. Hey. Hello. Uh, thank you all for coming out. Uh, for individuals listening to this interview, uh, and I just explained this to the three gentlemen I'll be speaking to, uh, rather than um, going into depth in the story of each respective uh, fellow here, uh, I'm just going to give a sort of a cursory glance, a, a little story of each, uh, each guy and then how they came together. And then from there will be the primary focus of the interview, which is the project and all of its various and sundry uh, facets. Uh, so I guess we'll bring it with you, Alan, because you're closest oh. to me here. Okay. Uh, could you tell me where you were born and when? I was born in Pikeville, Kentucky in 1968. Um, I think I, yeah, I'm pretty sure my mother was the first one born in a hospital. She, uh, when she was a little girl, she lived in a cabin in a hollow outside of Pikeville. But all of my family on my mother's side are from the hollows in and around uh, Pikeville, Kentucky. Uh, we moved out here when I was very young um, to, uh, to uh, live with my, uh, my grandparents who had moved out here in 1960 uh, after World War II. My, my grandfather was a fighter pilot in the Pacific Theater and, and um, got a job out here uh, at the Fatech Center down there. So that's how my family wound up here. Um, how long did you live in Kentucky? I, I was probably about three or four years old by the time we Did you have any real concept of being there? Did you build memories in the time? Oh, yeah, sure. There? I mean, I remember, I mean, going back to visit family, mm -hmm. um, but also I remember looking outside the front window of my grandmother's house and seeing the coal trains coming in through town uh, at, every day at 3 o'clock. They would come in, and there was this long procession of coal trains coming in. But I remember the, the smell of dried mud in and around the outside of the, of the house because there were periodic floods because they were right there on the big sandy so everything was kind of everything was kind of caked with mud in this one particular low-lying area of town and um, yeah I remember all those things sure there's a certain scent that I get when I'm around uh, mm -hmm. inland forests where I get that so. well coming into this area did they move into Philadelphia or one of the, the suburbs or oh no northern? southern New Jersey okay. yeah Summers Point okay. uh, so uh, we, yeah we went from you know my 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 father's side were from Covington Kentucky they were right on the the, the river plain there across from Cincinnati and uh, so they were you know more or less worked around the Ohio River Valley and everything, and then, you know, we kind of shifted over to a bay sort of uh, life, and that was uh, a bit of a culture shock for my grandmother, who was trying to cook crabs by throwing in them in cold water and then turning on the heat, things like that. She mm -hmm. didn't know how to, you know, do, you know, she wasn't, like, hip to the local way of, uh, the folk ways and that sort of thing. So we're, we're recent arrivals to uh, southern New Jersey. Right. What were your interests as a young man in southern oh, New Jersey? Uh, well, mostly butterfly collecting and shell collecting. Mm -hmm. I wasn't a very popular kid. <laughs> but uh, I spent most of, uh, most of my time in the woods. I mean, that's where, you know, I didn't have a lot of friends, but I, you know, that's where I felt most at home. 
And, and I still feel most myself in, in the woods alone. Mm-hmm. Um, was it Pine Barren Woods or, or different woods that you were in? Uh, at one time they were Pine Barren, but these were disrupted habitats at that point. Uh, Summers Point had undergone a, a growth spurt, but there were still um, wild areas that kind of ringed uh, Pakong Creek, which was an estuary. This was all estuary forest. Mm-hmm. So you have an awful lot of very strange habitat in there. It's like a saltwater habitat, but there's a lot of forest and marshes and so you'll get things like you know blue herons and now you'll get bald eagles but not at that time in the early 70s that was the absolute bottom of uh, when when things were really absolutely bad for a lot of particular species you actually see an awful lot more of certain birds now than you did then but uh yeah you had the beach you had the marshes you had the bays you know there was crabbing there was surfing it Mm -hmm. was it it wasn't a bad place to grow up barring the occasional hurricanes but it was a blue-collar, uh, clamor type of town back then. Now it's all ringed with... You say all, clamor? Clamors, yeah. Oh, oh clamor, yeah. So yeah, there, like, a yeah. lot of people worked the bay. I mean, mm-hmm. they were baymen. Um, a lot of the old bridges were still there. You know, they would kind of traverse the, uh, the bays, and you would traverse the landscape rather than be vaulted out of it with these concrete arcs that they put in now, mm-hmm. these bridges. So... Um, yeah, but that's that's really my introduction to the Pine Barrens because my father taught in um, in a small Pine Barrens town in the southern part of the Pinelands for 38 years. And I would occasionally go up and visit his class. And, uh, of course, the kids are always finding turtles and snakes and lizards and mm-hmm. salamanders. And, and what was all. he teaching? Uh, he was teaching, he was an old classic elementary school teacher. He was teaching in a 19th century schoolhouse, but he taught every... Uh, he taught every uh, subject with, uh, with the exception of music. Mm-hmm. And so he kind of imparted that to, to his kids a little bit, uh, how important it was to be well, well-rounded intellectually, to know a little bit about everything. And I kind of took that at heart as a kid. And so I was kind of a jack-of-all-trades, and I still am, you know, still working the hustle. <laughs> now you don't live in Philadelphia now, but you have a relationship with the city. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, how did how did your relationship with with Philadelphia come about? Well, what that's is your an, connection to it. Yeah, that's an extension of uh, you know that that ethic of being well rounded as having a foot in you know in as many worlds as you possibly can, you know, not being completely urban or rural, and so I've always thought it was important. But uh, I guess uh, that would that that connection started in my teen years. Uh, during the twilight of the classic punk era in the mid to late Oh, you said punk, good. Now I can yeah, well, stop. I, I, knew <laughs> I, I knew there were connections. Now no one else has the same. <laughs> no, but it was, I mean, that's really, that, that, that punk milieu was my way into the Philadelphia world. You know, the world of Philadelphia. So Before, you were coming into, into the city for shows? No, actually, they were coming down to uh, Ocean City. They would come down to the boardwalk, and they would congregate by the music pier, the old flagpole by the music pier, so, I mean, at the time, it was a much more tribal sort of youth culture situation. Mm-hmm. You had the skinheads, you had the punks, you had the new wave kids, you had the, the, the hippies, you had you even had a few rude boys and a few mods. Yeah. And I was kind of an active observer. I, I never really committed to any one thing because I found it all equally interesting. And so I kind of went from tribe to tribe. And besides, you know... These kids, there were so few of them. There was like a handful of each little subculture that they mm-hmm. all kind of hung together. Even the skinheads, which everybody hated, but you still, you know, they still hung with us, which was kind of a strange arrangement. Because I mean, a lot of my friends were gay, you know, or young gay men who weren't out yet. 
Yeah, I know at that time there was there was a lot of very peculiar relationships because I yeah. knew not personally but was aware of a black Nazi skinhead. Yeah. So I would he was not within the circle of people that I hung out with by any stretch of the imagination. Mm -hmm. But if one was on South Street in the late '80s and people were converging, this yeah. guy was there and he was like, "Oh, it's the black Nazi skinhead." But, yeah. You know, no no one make, it makes no sense it's to very, anyone. But I remember. There, I think I remember that guy. It's very yeah. Philly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah, like red laces or mm -hmm. something like that. You know, it's like even then, you know, all that whole code with the laces and the and the suspenders were, were yeah, still, white laces, white power. Yeah, they were all. Uh, they I remember trying to memorize that in high school, yeah. and it just drove me. Greens, <laughs> peace pumps. So, yeah, I mean, it's like trying to memorize all of the uh, the bandanas and the pockets and everything of gay culture. You just have to watch cruising. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> So that was, you know, before then I was just some hick kid, you know, down, you know, knocking around the woods and crabbing and all this. And my hands were really, you know, like calloused and everything from like working lines and knives and that sort of stuff, you know, living a bay life. But uh, that was my in, you know, it's like I went from surfing and then I, you know, a lot of these kids were introducing me to bands and it, it you know, I found that whole, whole thing very exciting. And then from there you would go up and you know you go to see shows in Philadelphia and, and of course being you know being some kid from out in the burbs or out in the sticks really I'm coming into South Street and I'm meeting friends of mine that I met in at, you know during the summers down there mm -hmm. and so that was my introduction into that world do you recall where you were seeing the shows in Philadelphia Oh gee, well you would see them in, down around uh, Ocean City too. Actually, they were playing at the VFWs and that sort of thing. And you know, bands like oh god, there were some local ones like uh, Nick Cave's Dick versus Godzilla. Or, that was a band. Yeah, yeah, there was Who a band called that, and there was a uh, you know, Misfortunes of Virtue. I mean, all of these goofball hardcore bands. You know, this was like in the late stage where like we, you know, you went through like the perverse intellectualism of punk, and then you know, it, it kind of like, sort of like morphed into like this really aggressive heteronormative thing like hardcore and it became a little something different, you know. So the perversity at that point had been kind of taken out of it and I was more interested in the perversity so I wasn't that terribly interested in the hardcore scene really. Right. I mean, I, I had my, I had my share, I mean every once in a while, you know, I would go to Reds and Margate of course. And they would put on shows there, you know, Dead Milkmen, mm -hmm. uh, Trained Attack Dogs, Ruin, they would play down there. And this is right across the street from uh, from uh, Lucy the Elephant. So you'd be out there mm -hmm. 2 o'clock in the morning, and you'd be taking off your Chuck Taylors and just like emptying your Chuck Taylors, of, you know, it's like a half a cup of, of sweat in your shoe, you know. But I mean, everything from your chest was gray. What did Lucy think about this? <laughs> Uh, I don't know. Lucy uh, kind of turned a blind eye. She was facing the ocean. Yeah, but uh, for the best. <laughs> yeah, it was probably for the, the best. Trump but... was decidedly deflated. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was an interesting time, though. I mean, you had you had a you had a bar next door to Reds, and 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 some of the locals would come over and pick fights with the punk kids. And so every Saturday night there was some sort of fight in there. Mm -hmm. Every yeah. night there was, there was like. But I remember my friends, you know, walking down the boardwalk with their laced up boots. And their mohawks that were like, I mean, quite literally two feet high off of their heads. Yeah, yeah. You know, with the one shoulder draped in a black leather jacket and just kind of walking around. And it was, you know, to, to us, it was all very exotic. But I remember, you know, kind of flitting, like I said, flitting from subculture to subculture. I'd be, you know, with the, the arty kids, you know, listening to uh, Cocteau Twins or something like that and then listening 
to Psycho Candy and and then you know maybe uh, Killing Joke or something. So I'm I was getting kind of an ed- I was getting quite an education, mm-hmm. you know, seeing these kids, and so that was very exciting. Yeah, David, uh, where were you born and when? I was born in 1975 in Union, New Jersey, which that uh, is north. That's yeah. North Jersey, yeah. and since we're talking about the Pine Barrens, I always basically preface this, the other New Jersey because it really might as well be a different state. And uh, you know, mm-hmm. part of part of doing this project, I think, was <clears throat> trying to come to terms with you know, kind of find some sort of peace with New Jersey. Um, could Which this, is, can this be achieved? Uh, because it seems like they're very different mindsets in, in the two. It's parties. a very it's different a mindset. State. Yeah. No, I don't think I don't think any feeling any love for South Jersey really does anything to affect my feeling for for North Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's something. It's you know it's it's an attempt anyway. Well, what were your interests as a as a young man? You know, prior to going into what you do now. What, what were you into? I was drawing and painting as early as I can remember. I mean, that was, you know, that was always my thing. I was always making art. Um, you know, I would take, uh, even in elementary school, I was taking classes outside of public school, you know, art classes, and adult classes, drawing from nude models and doing, like, all this, like, you know, just, you know, figure drawing, uh, sculpture and just like basically constantly making art um, do you still do all of this i still do not as often as i would like i think the the video production which is what i do for a job now and then working on this film for the last five years um it's really kind of taken a little bit away from the studio practice like actually painting and, and sculpting and i'm looking forward to getting back to that but it's it's such a big transition that you know, it's, I have to really kind of change, it's almost like your whole physicality, you know, like getting back in the studio and actually moving, where it's like right now, it's, I spend so much time editing and sitting on my computer, so it's, um, but I, but I miss it. You probably employed some of the artistic skills in, in, in terms of the framing and composition. I mean, if you bring an artist's eye to that, it probably aids in creating something beautiful on the well, screen. Oh, yeah. No, I, I don't really think of it necessarily as... I mean, it's a different medium, but I think I, I tackle every medium in the same sort of way. So, like, I'm making a documentary, but I really kind of think of it the same way that I would think of making a painting. You know, there's really... There's not that much difference except for the, the tools and, and uh, you know, how you apply them, but I feel like the, the thought process behind filmmaking and painting and, and other art forms are much more similar than I think people really uh, necessarily generally, gen- uh, generally talk about it. Um, but, uh, Do you mind if I interrupt? No, please interrupt. I uh, So I, I'm not sure if many people know, but the project started originally started as... Uh, we were sitting in David's studio and it was going to be a graphic novel and yeah, Dave was doing a lot of illustration at the time and then he had met with Alan and spent some time in the Pines and just started to do some video shooting and realized that uh, stop me if I'm wrong at any point but that it wanted, it wanted to be a film and he wanted to do a film but I've seen over the years a sheer amount of every other medium that this project has germinated and it's just incredible like there's paintings, there's illustrations there's sketches there's sculpture 
it's installation pieces it's just like it's really interesting it's yeah. almost like it is definitely and it's I guess ultimate film to the public will be a film but it's so much more than that I think yeah well I think it's it's actually it benefits the project to really just refer to it as a project more than a film because that's really what it is I mean even if the end goal is to make a film like all these different iterations of installation pieces and shorter films and the music that comes out of it and like you know all these different events that are all part of a bigger project which it almost it's gives is a disservice to just say it's a film because it's it's it, the process hasn't really been like a film it's not like we have like okay this is our shoot dates these are post-production like this is you know it's really been an evolution and it's really been a matter of like collaboration and and there's not really been a, a schedule. It's just sort of how things have just evolved over these five years, and and uh, and now it's only recently, only in the last say five months, has it really become a film. You know, this last edit that we you know screened at Whitesbog is the most filmic version of it. It's it 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 has a documentary or it has a film structure now, but that's really one, still only one part of a larger project. Well, this might be getting ahead of ourselves a, a little yeah, bit, but sorry. I think it's worth... Yeah. No, I'm mean, yeah. not, not saying that. The thing I'm about to say is, <laughs> oh, okay. is, is, which is, when you're talking about all of these, these elements that have gone into the project, you know, not just mm. the film, and earlier before the interview we were talking about, you know, would you possibly be doing a DVD or Blu-ray release, it seems like that would at least give you an opportunity to show people all that was involved in this thing, that it's not just this documentary, but there's this, you know, all of this ancillary material that yeah. has value, and if you were able to show that to people, I think that that would, you know, make it an even a more formidable project. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of the additions, um, they kind of just come and go. Uh, there's, there's some shows that we've been able to document, um, but often documenting, documenting it and then having the shows, it's, it's really kind of, it almost becomes impossible. So, but there is that kind of like, um, like ephemeral quality to a lot of it really. It's like we, you know, we'll have the show and it's one version of the film and I might still have those, those versions archived, but without the meet the live music or the, you know, Alan's done like, some like readings on, on top of some of this stuff and like you know so there are all these different elements that like happen live and then they're gone and but what is what we've sort of taken away from that is you know we kind of decide what works what doesn't work and then it kind of some things move on and the narrative of the project as opposed to the narrative of the film is is kind of the shift of understanding uh of place so from you know, I had never actually been to the Pine Barrens until the first day that Alan took us out there. So it's really, you know, f the course of five years, the shift of understanding and, and uh, familiarity with place and how that affects experience. Mm -hmm. so. Let's talk to Ben a bit and then we'll bring everybody uh, sure. together. Uh, where were you born and when? Uh, I was born in uh, Norristown in 1977. I grew up in rural Pennsylvania. Uh, I moved to Philadelphia to go to art school in '95, uh, and I've been here ever since. Okay. And you are, are practically a neighbor in the East. Wales yeah, neighborhood. <laughs> feel very comfortable out here. Uh, what were your interests as a young man? Uh, I've always been interested in the arts, specifically music. Uh, but I was interested in in uh, 
you know, all the arts, poetry, writing, uh, acting, theater, stuff like that. But uh, I, I did find myself drawn to film uh, through music, film soundtracks and stuff. And uh, I don't know, probably like a lot of kids in the late 80s, early 90s, just was glued to the VCR and the video store and always trying to find the weirdest thing I could find. <laughs> and what were the things that, that originally drew your attention at that time? Uh, I would say, uh, you know, art house films, documentaries. Uh, I remember seeing, I can't remember if it was Thin Blue Line. It might have been. It was an Errol Morris film. Uh, and, so, you know, science fiction, uh, THX 1138 was mm -hmm. a real big influence on me as a teenager. But all these films that just tried to connect. I, I, in rural, I grew up in a town called Boyertown, Pennsylvania, which had its own... Hardcore punk scene. I wanted to oh, mention that punk. too. Excellent. And I sort of, I don't want to quite say I was a poser, but I was borderline poser. So we'll just get that out there now. <laughs> and what, what, like, does, what does that mean to you? I mean, but, uh, well, I never fully committed. I, I always kind of stayed on the periphery, like kind of like Alan. I'm, I was interested in getting to know a lot of people and hear their stories. But um, I guess, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I enjoyed the shows. I even played guitar for a while. But I was always, in musically, I could never just go for the full-out aggression. I always wanted to bring things to this sort of pretty place, like a beautiful place, mm -hmm. like a lot of melody yeah. and, and harmony. And actually, Dave and I still clash about that sometimes. I have to tone down the pretty, but, uh, you know, but it's, it's interesting. So I, I feel like coming from that place, I, I always wanted to watch films that, uh, you know, show me a little bit of what the world outside of my uh, rural small town experience was and as soon as I could get out I got out and uh, I've never looked back I, I love Philly and I love all the people I've met here but uh, yeah I met I met David at UART shortly after going there in uh, I think it was 95 or 96 and the painting program and they uh, he swiftly left because he was too good and they had nothing to teach him <laughs> where did you go from there? Um, well I took a year off, I kind of applied to a bunch of other schools and eventually settled on, uh, I actually moved back to New Jersey, I went to Montclair State um, because they had a exchange program, uh, so I studied painting in the Netherlands for a semester and and then, you know, finished up at Montclair. Um, we had always stayed in touch. Yeah, we yeah we had stayed in touch that whole time. As soon as I finished Montclair, yeah. pretty much like you know the day I graduated, I called up Ben and it was like, you yeah. know, roommate. <laughs> <laughs> and I had stayed with Dave too uh, as roommates when he was in Philly the first time, and he was always interested in film. And we were always yeah. uh, at the time the art schools weren't in the '90s, at least where we were, weren't encouraging a lot of cross pollination. I feel like that's something that's done that's more now. Mm -hmm. But uh, Ben was the film major. Yeah, I was so I was the film major at the time, and he was the painter. But we were, you know, we were always exchanging mix tapes and stuff. Dave turned me on to a lot of amazing music that I never would have heard. I think actually the first time I had heard Brian Eno was because of you. And I should mention because everyone else has that I, yeah. high school I went to a lot of hardcore shows. Oh, very good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I just want to yeah. check that. I've out. seen photos and I can <laughs> confirm this. Yeah, I mean, well, my high school was yeah, it was. I mean, there weren't a lot of different genres to listen to if you grew up, if you were a teenager in New Jersey, really. I mean, at least in the, you know, like, late 80s, early 90s, like, unless you were listening to techno, you were probably a metalhead. And so then, you know... 
There was a ska scene up there. Not where, not where I was. I, mean, I didn't have any friends that were in ska. Most of my friends were in hardcore bands. Yeah. Um, so I went to a lot of hardcore shows. But I can't say that I ever really loved the music or was passionate about it. It was just sort of, it was more of a social thing. Yeah, I think it drew, I think a lot of people, at least you know, in my experience, who were the weirdos were drawn to this thing because that was the most active scene of weirdos. So I don't think that all those people, I don't even think that the ones who were in the periphery were posers. They were just people who were drawn to something that was energetic mm-hmm. and active well, and had different interests. They were weird. There was like, that's where, you know, some of the gay kids would be going well, there. Yeah, at, the te- like, at the time, the technical term for people in that, in that, periphery or at least in my little pocket at least the people I was surrounding myself with we we were known as art fags mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I know the art fags I would definitely say it's not my friends you know they had the chunky big black shoes yeah. that instead of shoelaces they were bows they were ribbons yeah. stuff yeah. like that it was a different you know did you guys do they're listening to a lot of clan of Zymox and 4AD bands and yeah, then, yeah. You know, I had the big ear you know that was that was my scene. That was that was my that those were my friends. And uh, for me, because I went to I, I I didn't go to an art school. I went to a, a liberal arts school, a state college, Stockton State College. It was known as at the time. They used to go to hardcore shows there sometimes. Yeah, yeah, there were a lot of uh, shows. That, but uh, that's that's where I learned my trade as a graphic designer and illustrator. Um, most of what I most of what I learned though was on the job. Really, it wasn't really had anything to do with with what I was being taught because I didn't I didn't feel like I got a very good foundation. I had a very broad education, but not a very deep one in any particular discipline. So I was kind of forced again to be a bit of a dilettante and to kind of cross you know like you guys were saying cross pollinate. I had to do that out of necessity because I wasn't particularly strong in any one thing. So my 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 modus, uh, uh, my way of working was to amass all of these small little abilities that I had and kind of sort of bracket them and put them into a, a larger hole. And then that's when I actually got some sort of impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How is it that you came to meet Ben and David? Oh, God, I can't even remember. It was the, uh, the once again, music kind of ties everything yeah, together. Yeah, uh, the it was Philly, the compound, yeah. The Philly, yeah, that's right. It, yeah. Uh, Fishtown, we had mentioned that we had, right after UArts, we moved in together in South Philly, where the rent was cheap. Yeah. And then uh, uh, you kind of got sick of South Philly, which I don't blame you at the time. There was It kind of felt isolating. Down, we were so far south. Oh, you mean David? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. And uh, there was there was something starting to happen in uh, Fishtown. There was this sort of psych folk scene that was developing. And David moved there and met a lot of people. And then he was like, you should come out here. So I moved to Fishtown. This was like, I want to say 2001, 2002. I had a record label at the time that was just closing down called Best Friend Records. And that didn't go well. That's a whole other story. But, uh, <laughs> but it was an experience yeah. and it was good and I, we met a lot of, collectively we met a lot of yeah. people. I used what to did, live, Oh, sorry. Uh, what did you wind up releasing with the uh, label? Uh, this, uh, there's a local artist, Sam Henderson. Uh, it was mostly focused on putting his stuff out. He was sort of, uh, he, he still is a fantastic writer. Uh, he does mostly playwriting now but he was a songwriter and he had sort of a Bob Pollard style. Mm-hmm. Uh, very frenetic, beautiful lyrics. Uh, yeah, uh, and uh, so we tried to get his stuff out. I had no clue what I was doing, right. and uh, I was a human research subject at the time after college, and mm. a pizza delivery guy. I worked at the taco house. What, 
Jesus uh, Christ. My, my brother worked at the Taco House, oh, and I did medical studies. Where did you do right. studies? I, I did studies at um, what, GlaxoSmithKline. I did too. Yeah. yeah we, Maybe we were probably we were in the, the same, same study. study. You <laughs> kind of look familiar a little bit. Yeah, yeah I did Glaxo and uh, yeah. Jefferson a lot. Okay, uh, and, I, yeah, and that's where I work now at Jefferson, actually, as yeah. a research scientist, partly because I started there as uh, a... Karen works at Jefferson, too. Oh, who, who that's fantastic. You. Yeah, yeah. The, she's the photographer for Jefferson. Jefferson. Oh, but, uh, yeah. wow. I got to... Yeah. Yes, yeah, so we have a marvelous web of interconnections yeah. <laughs> here. Yeah, wow. Yeah. But uh I could, what were you talking yeah, about? Yeah, the well the well kind of the, the scene kind of like oh, came so, up at the compound and there was like this great um freak folk electronic experimental kind of thing. It's which I mean the music is still around, people have sort of dispersed, but um it had a nexus at that point yeah, yeah there were three houses and they're all since separated now and they have new houses there's in the a back. condo where yeah. the garden oh, was yeah. there's this big courtyard in the back and it had gardens and you know it, it, it did it looked like something out of an anthropology catalog or something yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> in the proper light yeah you know, <laughs> when when you didn't get you know when the arctic splash uh, cartons weren't there, yeah. that heavy on the ground but uh, no, I, I mean they they had you know Bird Chanch I think you played there and all these really yep. you know I think you know Espers of course. Oh, I remember looking Kurt over Bob. and I was like, oh, this guy looks a lot like uh, Will Oldham, and I was oh, that's Will Oldham. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's uh, yeah, it was a real scene. I had actually heard of Alan, but at the time, no one knew he was Alan. We all knew him right. as Lord Whimsy, yeah. and he had written for our friend's newspaper, short-lived, fantastic paper called the Philadelphia Independent, written by a, a brilliant... Matt Schwartz. Matt Schwartz, yeah. who now is a yeah. freelance reporter, does brilliant work uh, yeah, he's for the New York Times and Atlantic and stuff. But uh, he had done the Philadelphia Independent, and he, Alan was doing these beautiful uh, sort of neo-baroque, can I call them that, sort of uh, illustrations? Sort of or? like a, what, I, what I... Yeah, I mean, the well, the, the I, I would call these, like, these sort of silhouettes sort of things mm, so yeah. it kind of left a lot to the imagination so that the it didn't overwhelm the text which i don't think it was possible because the text was so impossibly purple and ridiculous yeah but that's the why i loved thing, it this was your text yeah yeah I, I, I wrote yeah. and laid out and illustrated all of these i also photographed myself in ridiculous outfits and that sort of i thing. almost so, didn't think he was real this dandy i almost well thought that's what i was doing is i was kind of creating this so he was like, creating sort of a legend folkloric yeah. character was this supposed to be a reflection of you or or, or well, purely was, a construct of some some sort i guess if there was a nuclear war and there was no one else around and I was left on my own devices I'd probably become that but, you know I think I, I think I, I don't like to admit that there's you know like that it that there's I'm kind of hiding in plain sight with with the alter ego really because you know these are tendencies that have been deemed unacceptable in in most most quarters of American society so I found a way of getting around it by wearing a mask but what you find is over time the mask eats the face, and then eventually you know you you know it's like what Vonnegut said you know you be careful what you was it Vonnegut be careful what you pretend to be because eventually you may become it something like that, and um, so a lot of those traits were already there they were more like yearnings and then they became traits later, and you know it became from being a, a sort of an you know, sort of a, a lark to an alter ego to a full-time job. I was officiating over weddings and giving people advice. And you would be performing in... And it, it would be, yeah, it would be like, it, it's like the Purple Rose of Cairo, where you're like, you know, this, this, here's this 
character that I, I thought, wow, how powerful would it be if not only am I writing this way, but I actually look as though I stepped out of my own essays, stepped out of my own book, and that's exactly what I did. And I would just walk, sometimes I would just walk around Philadelphia just you know, and people would just zero in on you and just realize, you know, some people, holy shit, that's Lord Whimsy. And other people like, you know, people are like, who are you? You know, that sort of thing. So it was almost like being Batman in reverse. And it's Philly, so no one's like, you know? yo, fag, what the fuck? Well, yeah, well, you get that too. You know, it's like, but you know what? When I was in, when I was in, in, in when I was in rough African-American neighborhoods, I would actually get tips for shoes and hats. The only time I was actually wait, wait, what, you, what would you be wearing? Is when as... I was in places like Fishtown. Because, right, you know, right. It's like, right. I don't know what it is, but there's two different... Well, apparently, there are two different ways of being poor in the United States. One of them is to just wear it on your sleeve, put a tattoo on your neck, and go, yeah, I'm trash. Yeah. And then the other part, you know, the other, the other way of being poor in the country, and this is, this is how I was raised because my family was, you know, my mother grew up in poverty, is, you know, you may be poor, but you're not trash. And, and dressing up and, and presenting yourself in that way was a way of conferring dignity on yourself. My grandfather was a street sweeper, but he would go to his locker, he'd put on his hat and tie and jacket, and he would walk out into the street, and he would be a respectable person. You know, so that was like very important growing up. And I think African Americans share that ethic to a certain degree, and they respect that. And so I have that connection sometimes when I'm when I'm when I I would have that connection. And like I said, it was it was an interesting social experiment as well as like a I don't know if I would call it literary. It was a kind of entertainment really, mm -hmm. but there was a literary streak to it. You kind of had to know your Oscar Wilde and your you know and your Noel Coward and you know basically all the classic dandiacal authors out there. A little Byron in there too. A little Byron, a little Saki, right. you know, yeah. you know. And knowing their enemies too, you know, beer bomb and all of those. So, you know, it was important to know that world that you were drawing from. You know, so you're leaving in little Easter eggs for, and boy, did the academics come out for that. They just loved that. You know, all these, all these, you know, literary history buffs and that sort of. They just came out of the woodwork and wanted to interview me and everything like that. And it's like I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I have a, I have a, you know, I'm from some podunk college in southern New Jersey with a, with a bachelor degree. Like I had no business doing what I was doing. I was just throwing shadows and just amusing people, but people took me seriously for a while. Shit, if it works. <laughs> yeah, it was ridiculous. And then I wound up getting a book deal, and it was like I, I just, you know, threw, you know, the manuscript to an agency, and like in two days they called me back, and then within a week I had a book deal with Bloomsbury, and that got me a house. And then three weeks after that I had a film deal with uh, Johnny Depp's production company, Infinito Neal. And so that was even more. So I was like, yeah, I was just flush there for a while. What, so what happened with that? Well, I blew, I blew, I blew a lot of the money on suits. Is what happened. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's no, there is no movie, right? So I mean, no, no, no. What happened? I think is that they used me as like a stylistic template for that movie. Um, yeah, uh, just came out the Mordecai. Mordecai. Yeah. Well, Mordecai was actually that was actually a series. It was like a Lord Peter Whimsy. You know, it was like it was not Dorothy Sayers. I forget the the author, but there was a series in the eighties under Mordecai. But I think they used me. If you look at some of the shots from two thousand six, oh, yeah. they were definitely <laughs> using me as an inspiration for for Johnny's look for that. So basically, I got all the money and none of the blame. Oh, is Lord Whimsy still alive? No, he's dead. We had a funeral. Yeah, for him. we killed yeah, him last yeah. year. Actually, yeah, yeah. Just yeah, like these guys helped me. Uh, <laughs> is not, not going to be resurrected at some point. <laughs> well, there you never know. I mean, if there's, well, if there's money in it. Yeah. You know. <laughs>
No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so we were trying to get... What, so how is it then that you... We didn't establish this, No, right? we didn't. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, we only really knew Alan as Whimsy, as Lord Whimsy, um, that, through that whole period of time. I think I knew... Maybe I, I might have known that his name was Alan. I'm not even sure. I don't think anybody cared, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, I'm not even sure I cared that anybody knew my name at that point because I got so deep into it. But uh, there was this thing that you were doing even back then, and we had heard whispers through friends that Lord Whimsy would take you on this tour of a magical place called the Pine Barrens in New Jersey and show you wild plants like you've never seen before <laughs> and, and medicinal herbs and things. Oh, and every, I'll rock yeah. your world. So <laughs> that sort of... I think that yeah. seed was planted before we even... Yeah. Well, we were sitting down in, in Ben's kitchen there were a few times where we were just kind of trying to figure out what this project was going to be when we were still talking about being a, a graphic novel and we were just and and, and Ben's brother is a, is a writer as well so yeah it was just like well who are these characters going to be like what are we what are we doing and then at some point Alan's name came up I don't even know how, don't know exactly. how either. it was yeah. Alan and Susan it's like oh yeah, yeah we should really talk to them and I don't even remember actually like calling or emailing. I just saw you on the street in yeah, the city. Yeah, you bumped into me. I just I just bumped yeah. into you, and it's like it's like uh, yeah, I hear you know something about the Pine Barrens. Yeah, and that's how it started. Yeah, I think that's how. Um, it yeah. But the the great thing about it, I mean, it was really just all the fates kind of working together. It's like because Alan had this history of uh, playing with character uh, and identity uh, in his own art and in his life. It wasn't just that I had like a subject, a documentary subject who could show us the Pine Barrens. Like he could actually be in on the project, and and he's not necessarily playing a character, but it's but that's kind of a variation. Usually, is like I'm not playing anybody. I'm kind of hiding in plain sight. Right, and, and there that's is kind of yeah. my mo. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is a costume, and there is a lot of um, his identity is obscured in a lot of different ways. Like you never see his face very clearly. So, and that was by intention. It was very yeah. It was intentional. Yeah. I think the first day I had a, a wicked it, fever blister that day, and so I was kind of <laughs> hiding my hat. I was like, oh man, I haven't had one of these in years. What the hell? Like the one day I had to be on film, you know. Yeah. So I was like, all right, all right this is a plan. Yeah. No, the first because that's why I, I had worked on other projects previously. I had done a, a, a series in Fishtown, uh, like in, in 2007 or 2008, where I would just kind of go out and shoot a bunch of stuff, like interview people, strangers on the street, under the L tracks, and and then I would just go back to the studio and then edit something and put it out in the world yeah. um, as sort of these like ongoing documentary projects. So I didn't think that's what I was going to do with the Pine Barrens, but I had the footage from that first day. and. Um, when I looked at it, I was just kind of like the, the, the footage where he was talking, but his face was obscured and he kind of became this, um, sort of an armature, really. Like yeah. Well, you know, I, I think of it as almost like the prototypical nature guide character, but since his motivation is not established and his identity is not established, you don't necessarily trust him. Yeah. So, um, do so you think there's an element of the trickster in there? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 No, I'm a, I'm a bullshit artist. From the world. <laughs> well, listen, I mean, some of your observations yeah, in the film are very acerbic. I mean, especially when you're, you're, you're dealing with the trash that people yeah, have I got left behind. Yeah, I got upset that day. But um, obviously, that's, uh, that's not exactly uh, me throwing shadows. That's just me being pissed off. Well, I mean, that was one of the things I wanted to point out about what I liked about the film was that you kept in some rough language uh, and because having grown up in New Jersey, I'm very familiar with 
the honking accents that I hear in there, which hopefully I've managed to remove from my own speaking patterns, and the yeah. agitation that can come from you know being close to the city of Philadelphia and being a Jersey person, and. I was afraid before I saw the film that maybe it would be it would be very beautiful and very poetic and it would leave out the kind of fuck you Jerseyism and I think that there's it's speckled in there which I think is good and I think it's especially seen yeah, in the scene where you're, you're going through you know looking at what people have left behind the damage that they've wrought and you know you're genuinely angry about it and I think that that's that emotion is worth having present in the film well, and yeah. not being whitewashed out of it. You know, instead of just having yeah. some. Well, nice even at the and time, it. I knew when I was, you know, I was going off. In the back of my head, I knew that David ultimately was going to use that footage because it was number one, it was on honest opinion, but also because I knew the film probably needed it. You know, and needed a little bit of that vigor, that fiber, and so you know, I, I had a, you know, I had a pretty good feeling that even when I was, you know, going off, you know, part of me was like personally, you know, just like oh, I probably shouldn't have gone that far, but. Uh, but I also kind of knew that it had to be said that you know that if if I'm playing that archetype or I'm not really playing it, but it's like if I, you know, if I'm if that's the point of view that I'm coming from, then the inevitable uh, result would be that that would be expressed. I think, you know, it's you know, it just makes internal sense, like logically, that that it's what happened. I'm sorry, Ben. No, no, it's strange too because when we started this film, I don't remember those. It might have been as bad, the pollution, the ATV issues that have arisen. It's the, always been there. But the pipeline certainly wasn't there. And no, it just feels it. like, but I don't know if it's political climate right now, but it, uh, if the sh things are shifting to the right, it feels like in the United States, uh, it feels like conservation is more important than ever. And mm -hmm. I remember the film definitely, it, over time, I feel like those elements have come out to the fore more just because yeah. of the the climate around we're, we're kind of reaching another crisis point like and, and in a lot of ways it parallels the conditions that were going on at the time john mcphee's pine barrens book was coming out um at the time they were talking about paving the pine barrens and turning into a large regional airport with a large town to service it and all that and so that was re it was reaching a point of crisis then and it seems like we've kind of come full circle now. We're reading that we're reaching another crisis point where a precedent has been set, where the, you know they're really breaking down and trying to break the the Pinelands Commission to just do the bidding of the moneyed interests, so they can get in their water lines and gas lines, and then they can throw in commercial corridors up up and down Route 72 in the middle of the Pine Barrens. And uh, so we're again, you know, at a point where these things are coming to a head. We should have a bit of a sidebar here because McPhee's been mentioned a few times yeah, in, yeah. The, in the Pine Barrens book, but for those who aren't familiar with it, if, if one of you or all of you want to say something about the book and, and, and its writer. Go to it. Right. Uh, 1968, right? That's yeah, around right. 1968, John McPhee uh, wrote a series for The New Yorker um, called The Pine Barrens, and it was, um, it was a work of creative nonfiction. Uh, he it just basically documented his travels travels through the Pine Barrens, meeting characters, talking to people. Um, in a lot of ways, it's very matter of fact. It's kind of like, well, here's some of the folklore, here's some of the plants, here's the cranberries, here's what people talk about. Um, but then in other ways, it, it it was very evocative, and it really kind of allowed people to see the Pine Barrens as 
kind of this wondrous place rather than just like this backwoods dark forest where nobody wanted to go and part of that book really towards the end is when he starts talking about the jet port and the fact that you know he's has documented a time and place that is likely at that point to be the end of the Pine Barrens um, you know it was really if the jet port was built there would have been so much development that it really could probably could not have sustained it. and then you know yeah and they were also talking about you know the Pine Barrens sit on 17 trillion gallons of water in the Kirkwood Cohensee Aquifer so all that development you think about what it's going to do with to the aquifer and what that that means to the you know water supply of like half of New Jersey and you know so I mean it really would have been a, a disaster um, but because McPhee wrote this book well this series of articles which eventually was, was published as a, as a book the following year um, it opened up a lot of people's eyes to what the Pine Barrens actually are and how unique and important they are um, and it opened up the eyes of Brendan Byrne, who was the then governor, and he was a friend of, of John McPhee. And Brendan Byrne realized that he was in a position to do something, um, and he started working on drafting legislation to, uh, to eventually, what eventually became the Comprehensive Management Plan and the, assembled the Pinelands Commission. Um, and the Pinelands became the Pinelands National Reserve, the first national reserve in the country in 1978 eight, eight. yeah so a decade but um yeah uh, so it's often attributed to john mcphee who still is a professor at princeton university uh have you had any communication with him no i've tried and i'll try again he's he's a little bit reclusive and he's still working he's he's still on deadlines so you know he, he has gets a... rather impatient with people who want to talk about the pine barrens because he's just like i've done like 20 books since then that's <laughs> yeah. like that's like so far back i probably i barely even remember doing it you know it's like anybody who's worked on any string who's got a long track record like that is they always want to talk about the book you know the first book or something like that is like oh, oh I understand I that give it that. three years I'm not going to want to talk about the Pine Barrens yeah exactly <laughs> just like I'm so sick of talking about the Pine Barrens yeah yeah. But considering his, his impression, his footprint is yeah. not only in the Pine Barrens but in your work so significantly right. it seems like you know he, he must take some he would have to take something from the fact that he comes up so significantly in your your film. Well, yeah, I mean, he hasn't seen the film yet. He knows about it. I've I've talked to the people at the Morbin Museum where I where we both gave a talk a little while ago. So I know them a little, a little bit. So I've, you know, asked if I could meet him or film him or something and he didn't he didn't really have the time. Um so he knows about it. It's on his I wouldn't even say it's on his radar. I mean, it, it, you know, if if it comes up, maybe he'll remember that there's this thing happening. So, um, yeah, but only knows. yeah, but I I would I, I do see the film as being a descendant, I guess, of, of McPhee's book, um, and even if it has a fraction of uh, the uh, longevity, or or even I mean, if it has any sort of effect on awareness and. Uh, the like future protection, um, you know that then that's an added bonus. Yeah, yeah. I think it, at the very least, this film, and I should probably say, is like I've 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 look, being a, a lifelong resident of Southern New Jersey, 
uh, I'd always hoped that somebody with true cinematic talent would come and do the film that I was hoping someone would do of the place, give it the, the sort of treatment that it deserves, and uh, David was that guy. So, you know, otherwise I was going to have to learn how to make films. And so he saved me a hell of a lot of trouble. It saved me like at least four years. Um, so I'm, I'm glad of that. But uh, I think at the very least, it it's a document of a certain point in the history of that region. And at the very least, I think it will be an interesting historical document because there is an awful lot in there that, uh, that in, in 50 to 100 years, I think uh, a lot of historians are going to be very interested in. Yeah, plus whatever, I mean, he's got so much extra footage that, you know, really the, there should be an archive uh, somewhere, yeah. you know, in a university. We, we, we have, like, probably at least three LPs worth of music, too, for yeah. this. Yeah, because well, yeah, I've also been recording all the practices from the very beginning. Yeah, yeah. For, we have five LPs years. Yeah. yeah, there's some gorgeous stuff in there yeah. that you guys... Yeah, some of my favorite music was just, like, played around a bonfire More and we never did anything with it. We've been so lucky with our... I need to mention at this point that I, I'm the chosen representative of the Ruins. I, I've been working on this project probably for, for so long, and uh, I just, because I'm so in love with it, I'm always uh, petitioning David with uh, synth and electronic tracks, which I think is why I've, I've always, uh, I don't know, I've just been so excited about it, and, and uh, I probably have the most amount of free time out of everyone, but I'm representing the Ruins of Friendship Orchestra, which is the musicians that are attached to the Pine Barrens Project. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, Gretchen Losey, uh, Jesse Sparhawk, uh, John Pettit and Laura Barrett. So hi guys. <laughs> Actually, I want to talk to you about the music in a second. There's one okay. question I want to ask about mm -hmm. Pine sure. Barrens, and then I want to shift over to the music. I I grew up in the shadow of the Pine Barrens, so I was always aware of it. But I'm curious if you have any feeling of what does the rest of the country know about the Pine Barrens? I mean, is it is it known nothing at all? Nothing. Okay. No. So I mean, when you that's uh, the beauty of you know if you're if you're an artist or a writer or something like that, it's just this weird little forgotten pocket that's just been completely I mean if you're not if you're not specifically going to South Jersey there's no reason to go there right even you know, people in Philadelphia we're only 45 minutes away yeah, people in Philadelphia there. if I explain the project I have to be like okay you know when you're driving down the shore and there's the that you know I don't know what is it like a half hour of trees that green that green <laughs> haze right. going by your well that's that's actually 1.1 million acres and there's a lot of stuff back there that's really cool <laughs> like alright but yeah. so I guess it, it poses a certain challenge to you as filmmaker who is eventually going to present this film to audiences around the country I mean it's it, Kind of an easy sell to some, well, yeah. sure, yeah. <laughs> so it's fairly easy sell locally because you've got you know, local people who right. are in it, some right. people who are aware of it, but you've got to in, in turn go forward yeah. to present this thing to a country or a world who has no idea what it is and say, yeah. "This is why you should be interested in." I think if they start to watch the film, they'll be drawn into it, but they have to buy the premise. Well, if you look at uh, a satellite image at nighttime of the northeastern seaboard, you'll see just a, a sheet of, of white light. And there's only one area in that. There's just this little hole. There's this wonderful, just this little uh, lacuna in the middle of, that, like in the dead center of that white sheet of light. And that's the Pine Barrens. Is, is Everything is else around it has been developed and, and commodified, commercialized. And that is, it is an oasis, it is an island completely surrounded by 
modernity. But inside of that, I mean, you could be, you wouldn't, I mean, in some areas, it looks exactly as it did in the 18th century. But what you bring up is is definitely a concern. It's always been a concern of mine. I didn't want this to be like a regional project that had no interest outside of it. And and really, I never even thought of it so much of as being a film about the Pine Barrens. It's they more were, of a film from the Pine Barrens. It, yeah, it, exactly. Yeah. It's it's a film about nature, about exploration, about perception, about... Um, yeah, the pressures that are on places like this, too. You know, and the people who live in them and how they see the place and how they see themselves within the context of that place. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's It's a film about identity. It's about American identity. Uh, it's about the struggle between uh, our identity and the identity of the Pine Barrens and, and how those two things interact and play off each other and are often at odds with each other. Um, so I think all these things are are subjects that, yeah, if, if if you decide to turn it on, it's it's there. those are the things that I'm focusing on. And the Pine Barrens almost become a stand-in and a backdrop for a lot of these other ideas. It's almost uh, to me. It's kind of like you know the, the the like the silent character in the whole thing, really, because I mean it really does exert itself on the mood of the film. In in very, I mean it's it's the thing that exerts itself on the thing. Because if you look, all the other characters in the film are talking about the Pine Barrens in relation to other people within the Pine Barrens. But there's there's maybe like one or two people or or subjects in the film that actually have a direct relationship to the Pine Barrens itself. They're not talking about oh you know Joe used to live down the down the way here and he used to have a farm. You're not you know it's like you're not you know a lot of these people they're not addressing the place directly and that's kind of interesting. So you have the people around these campfires and that's an interesting structure that you've put in the film where you have. You not only, you know, have fire as an as a as a constant theme throughout the thing where fire uh, you know regenerates the forest and makes the pine barrens possible, but it also uh, you know people are huddling around the warmth of these fires and speaking about the place to each other. But there's a couple subjects in the in the film that kind of have their back to the to the to the campfire they're looking at the woods they're not looking into the fire and that's I, I thought that was an interesting tension yeah. and film itself is a light and darkness film or video is a you know, oh absolutely black mm. black yeah. room with with a center of light where right. where ideas are being yeah. conveyed so you that is really, sort of a, a campfire in and of itself yeah you could really kind of you could really see it that way and i always i i saw the fire as kind of being like um it's almost like the tongue of the of the pine barrens. I mean, it's yeah. it's the it's the way that communication happens. Um, you know, so it, it's not only essential for the ecology, the physical ecology of the pine barrens. It's like, it's essential for rejuvenating the identity of the pine barrens. Yeah, it's a cultural uh, touchstone as well. But I thought it was brilliant how you resolved all of that too. The, the edits and all of that is wonderful. Yeah. But it's a, kind of acts like a Greek chorus throughout the whole thing. You know, everyone you know have these. Uh, single subjects and you know, you'll explore their world and then we'll go back to the campfire and it's another flurry of activity kind of kind of introducing a, yet another chapter. You, you mean you've, you've elected not to use a, a voiceover narration mm-hmm. so you're in effect leaving it to the images and then the, the 
interview subjects, the people who appear in the film, to kind of tell the, the story, the narrative, their yeah. story, the story of Pinecraft, yeah, et cetera. I, I try and remove myself from from the... My, well, I, I try to remove my presence, my felt presence. I mean, there's no handheld shots anywhere in the film. Everything is almost all locked down tripod shots, except for when it's man, mounted onto a kayak. Yeah. Um, so then Mount, that's... Yeah. Mounted in right. big scare quotes. <laughs> taped, <laughs> taped to a kayak. But... Um, yeah, so in that case, like, it's, like, the river itself is kind of directing, but, like, it's, yeah. um, yeah, so the, the decision to not have my voice, not have any kind of commentary, uh, so it's a series of, of moments that could be read in many different ways, and they already seem to be being read in many different ways, which is great. Um, yeah. Do you know Frederick Wiseman, the, the documentarian? Uh, because Wiseman's direct cinema would employ people saying things and just kind of showing scenarios. Now, the story is manipulated to a degree in its editing because mm -hmm. you elect of course, you know, yeah. what you're going to use, but is, does Wiseman at all play a role in your pantheon of documentaries? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a similar idea. I... I as much as my hand is not in the like it's not seen it's all over it i mean it's really kind of it's it really is my vision of the pine barrens f both as a naive explorer and as somebody who is more familiar with it in these all these different stages so you're the audience is really following my journey through the pine barrens so uh, there's no way that i'm going to like like actually remove myself from it and then obviously in the editing and the choice of music and um yeah there's uh i'm i'm i really am all over it but i you know maybe for that reason i is one of the reasons why i decided to like kind of remove myself my voice from it and my hand from it just to like really do as much as possible to at least give the appearance of you know the the viewer being in that moment in that space like one on one with these people, not not with me as like a uh, um, you're getting conduit. A, you're getting like a Dante's eye view, you know, with me as Virgil. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But one of the elements I think that, that, that you have that's going to help you sell the film to a larger audience is the music, yeah. which is what I wanted to talk to you about, uh, Ben. Sure. Uh, what was your idea in coming into scoring this? I mean, did you look at other projects or films or something? as a means of grappling with scoring the project? Uh, not at first. Uh, I, I was just in a very ambient synth mood at the time when David had gone out and first started shooting, and he would come back, and I would see sort of a rough edit of the footage. Uh, there were almost... It, it sort of came out of his earlier projects, where there were almost these little like tone poems sort of about the place. And he would ask me, just he would just say, "What do you have? Like, show me what you got. How does this? How do you respond to this?" And I would. It was a very emotional experience, I have to say, uh, because when uh, we we had we had just gone out there at the time early on and sort of gathered up any musician friend that was interested in and just sort of recorded, had a bunch of recorders going and recorded our emotional uh, response to the place as musicians and sort of worked pieces out of that. But then I would also go home and sort of almost meditate on the footage that he would send me and just sort of conjure up a feeling. Um, so it was a very personal experience for me. And uh, 
I, I think it ended up working. Although uh, a, a lot of a lot of those tones uh, are still carried throughout to this final piece here, but they've changed a lot uh, from being played live. It's very different working on a piece live with other musicians, and then but I always sort of try to carry over an element of when I spend sort of time alone with the footage that he shoots, uh, because I feel like that nugget of emotional or or like tone sort of helps we can build from that as a group and, and interesting things happen has the music been affixed to amalgamated to the the movie now or is it still you know, I, being created and altered i mean I, some scenes haven't changed very much in a while but yeah. um some some change with the structure of the film like we had some pieces that we would do in performances for a couple of years but now with this edit like having like a song part did, doesn't work for some of these scenes and so it becomes, becomes more incidental. Um, yeah, things have, uh, depending on what the scene requires, it could just be a very pared down, like a few tones, uh, or it could be a whole song. Uh, certainly with a narrative film, uh, The Pines is very musical in itself and that's something we also did in the beginning. We had a few people doing field recordings and those were actually incorporated into early of these more poetic edits that we did, performance pieces. And the the pine the sounds of the pines itself are beautiful the crickets, the birds, uh, the calls of the frogs, the wind just the wind. Yeah, it comes through really pines. clearly in, the, in a, a scene where you're Me walking through to uh, in the be a frog. Yeah, the, yeah. Where, where there was a part where uh, I think it was towards the end of the film where it was winter and you were walking and the, you could hear the you know the trees and the mm -hmm. wind through the trees is yeah. you know pretty uh, a striking. So uh, as a composer, you don't want to. I I never wanted to compete with the pines itself. It's very musical and interesting and i've always just wanted to try to uh form a symbiotic relationship with that and that's i think why i've ended up using such a simple uh palette of like sort of muted synth, synth tones i'm much luckier than the other musicians they're sort of locked in with their acoustic instruments to a certain frequency range but i can for, sort of find these low tones with like a low pass filter and just sort of cut off everything in the mid and high range so it just sort of floats there and he can do a really nice bit of sounds on top of it, and it almost becomes like subconscious. Mm -hmm. And uh, I like that. Yeah. I was I was really impressed by uh, when when I first saw one of the edits and saw what you guys were doing, not only with the edits but musically. And it just it, it just it's just one of those. To me, this is one of the most uh, exciting uh, artistic collaborations that has happened in the last decade in Philadelphia. And I, I, I really Thanks. believe that. I think you guys just, both, I mean, just the whole thing just comes together beautifully. And it was, it, it was nothing that was forced or, or mannered or anything like that. It just, it just happened to be at the right place at the right time. Everybody happened to be at the same juncture. I, unlike a lot of other bands I've been in, everyone communicates really well. Everyone gets along yeah. fantastically, which is strange because we all have separately. We have relatively different styles like in individually of of the stuff we do yeah. but uh somehow it all you throw it all in the blender and it just sort of works but when it came together it yeah. didn't sound like a typical like every damn uh documentary i ever saw about the pine barrens is you know they always try to make it kind of down homey or something like that it was just this is a, what you guys did was much more interesting than. Well, that. there are certain things that we definitely well, yeah, decided you, to resist. Well, you, you touch, <laughs> you, yeah, so no you, banjos. Well, no. well, there, there, well, there banjos, are banjos, yeah. but they're done in a way that they're not. That we're not, all just very aware. Like if we're gonna, oh, yeah. 
we can reference the tradition without necessarily just mimicking it or or just saying well this is it it's like no and that happens with the cinematic language of the film too and and pretty much everything in the film if 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 there's something referenced if there's a tradition that referenced um it's often undermined uh and Mm -hmm. that's that's kind of one of the strategies that i think the both the music and the film takes where it's like you know we're not saying that this is you know because you've only heard bluegrass and the pine barrens like all of the our film has to be all bluegrass i mean it's like um no you yank the 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 rug out from people's preconceptions uh, quite a few times in the film probably the most marked one is uh, where you're showing that guardrail with you know scrawled on there with uh, spray paint New Jersey sucks and then immediately like it switches over to this jump cut to this gorgeous panorama of just all of these pine trees just caked in ice and it's this beautiful glow either it's evening or morning it does with this rosy light and the whole thing looks like it's spun glass and it just like you know it's almost yeah it's just a fantastic that was just such a great moment i actually laughed when i saw it i was like really delighted by that well i think that 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 you know new jersey sucks thing is kind of part of what what i like about the film is that that's there that there's a little barb as well so it's not all just a tone poem of love to the pine barrens but there's mm-hmm. there's you know there's oh, little sharp yeah. edges oh, here yeah. Yeah, that you can prick yourself on because right. i think that that's to me, that's part of the experience of that, right. of and that, that place and, and the people that's place. there. I mean, if you were going to do a, a film, like a film about Philadelphia, and it would be all that. Yeah, it would just be yeah. all fucking. But, <laughs> but New Jersey's not that different. Oh, you no, know, there's beautiful like, elements too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, you find beauty in those things. I mean, it's not like I don't. Yeah. It's not necessarily that like I have to like disrupt the beauty with like you know profanity. It's like the profanity becomes part of the beauty because it's just. It's just the reality of it. Yeah, it's part and parcel with the right. environment and those those who live there. Uh, the the music is com, comes over as very psychedelic, and 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 with some of the the scenes where you've got you know, the cameras moving about, or there's there's scenes of nature and things like that, it, it creates to me a uh, lysergic or psychedelic effect. Which is would I've, you say that that is purposeful? I uh, I would say that uh, I don't know if it's consciously purposeful purposeful but uh, a lot of i've actually been having psychedelic experiences in the pines lately i feel like it gets me more in tune with that place and that's sort of a new experience for me so if that ends up in my my part of the music then that's uh that's great (laughs) that's being conveyed but i i i would say that uh it's interesting because we we don't just i don't know if i mentioned this but we don't just look at the images we go out as a group of musicians into the pines and we camp there we sit around a fire we actually, when we first met, the ruins, the name Ruins of Friendship, that's our, that was our first gathering place, a town called Friendship that is now gone. It's just ruins. It's old foundations. And we sat in one of these foundations and just sort of felt what solid came out and recorded it. And I feel like that response, uh, if that's psychedelic, it, yeah, that's interesting. I, I, um, well, I think definitely one of the, I think uh, where the film and the music really come to a head, at least, you know, one of the stronger moments is that night sequence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, in terms of psychedelia. But that, a lot that's of... such a great, uh, just, you guys just let loose in that. A lot of people in the ruins have a background that in that, so I, I'm, I'm not surprised, too, that that, that comes off. Uh, there's yeah. definitely people who are, who are uh, veterans of some uh, excellent psychedelic uh, music outfits. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, in watching it, I see in, in parts 
the psychedelic experience reflected. And I wondered if it was something that, that, that all three of you felt like you were expressing in some way in the film. Because to me, it seems very clear. Mm. But that may be my interpretation spots. I mean, Ben, you seem to clearly indicate that. But I mean, did yeah. you feel like you were well, yeah, those, expressing a psychedelic experience? Yeah, I mean, I think I mean those moments of the film, uh, I mean, they're really representative of the you know, ultimate sense of, of, of wonder and mystery. Yeah, it's and, like a reverie of nature almost. Yeah, I mean, it just sort of like, at those moments you can kind of just let reality go. And like, that's really the point of that. It's just, you're, you know, you, you might have seven minutes of, you know, talking about cranberries and then you're just like at night with owls and wind and, and tree frogs and like you can, and you really just... That's the sense you get. You really do, or you really are able to detach yourself from reality. And I guess that's like, I mean, I, I'm, I'm thinking that's what psychedelic But But when, when you're out there in next to a bog, deep in this forest on a rainy, wet, hot, steamy night, surrounded by these frogs, mm -hmm. just this cacophony you've never heard in your life. I mean, it is, even if you're not on any kind of drugs at all, it's, yeah. it is, it's, it's a reverie, it's overwhelming, it's psychedelic, because you just... It's as, I mean, even if you didn't grow up in Philly, which is urban, if, if you grew up in the suburbs, you've never, I've never experienced nature like this, mm -hmm. like just so saturated. There's just so much life. It's almost oppressive at, at points. It's, for me, it's home. So, I mean, it's, it, the, the thing for me is I, I think it, it isn't necessarily a matter of reaching for a psychedelic experience or anything like that. It's just that's what is out there. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like if you look at it with fresh eyes and hear it with fresh ears, that's but coupled with the music though creates you know? a very uh, oh sure when you do that you really punch it up for people in the atmosphere. But yeah. being out there in general, I mean, my friend Bill Bolger, who's also in in the film, I mean, Bill and I will be out by that colony at two o'clock in the morning we'll just be out there in the in middle of june just eating berries for three hours not <laughs> saying anything just listening to the frogs and just eating berries at two o'clock in the morning out in the middle of the rain it's just but it you know That's that to life. us is normal but we also realize you know, that to us is is a kind of salve or a bomb um i i it's a coping mechanism for us it's, it's a place to escape to yeah. and if if heightening it with the music and the editing gives other people that experience, so much the better. Well, it is a film. It's cinema. I mean, there is there. It is impressionistic. There is artifice. Oh sure. There's like yeah. I mean, around the, you, know, you bring in the music. I mean, there's 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 special effects in it. I mean, they're not noticeable necessarily, but there's like you know, there's there is a certain hand of like you know, kind of accentuating the quality to make it more like what it feels like that you wouldn't have in, you know, just say, like, I, I would say, like, a conventional documentary, because I feel like in order to, to get at that experience, you almost, you have to, you have to get into almost fictional territory. Yeah, because, I mean, otherwise you're not going to really, I mean, it's, a, it's such a subjective experience being out there that it's really hard to get to that unless you do that, I think. 
we, we mentioned the Chris Marker because of the mm-hmm. poster here, but it, the, you know Chris Marker's films, a lot of them, uh, not La Jete, but some of the other films come over in part as documentaries, but also as these sort of visual poems where they're they're not adhering to a strict documentary form by mm-hmm. any stretch. Oh, yeah. So there's there is something that's informative about it, but but largely it's something visual and poetic, which is seems more like maybe what you would be going for, although you're film is certainly more more factual than than a lot of uh, the the marker stuff yeah and that's comes from the experience like i i didn't it took a while it took a long time actually many years to become a film that incorporated um a significant amount of information i almost wish you had seen an earlier version it's a pretty big (laughs) Um, yeah yeah, because it really was more impressionistic it was more a matter of evoking these sensations um but at a certain time, it's just kind of like, you know, you need to frame, you need a framework for that. You need a context because it can't just be these like psychedelic, you know, night river experiences unless you understand the bigger picture, unless you, you get the framework and then all of that yeah. becomes that much more poignant. Mm-hmm. Um, but it took many years for like the, those themes and that information both to surface to kind of for me to figure out what was important, but then also how to convey that without without breaking the tone and without like having talking heads or a lot of text like and that's where the the fire conversations came from it's like how do i still have an evocative moment that you want to be in that feels like it's a, a time and place and then the information just kind of washes over you mm-hmm. I wanted to go back for a second, Ben. With sure. you, you mentioned that you were having psychedelic experiences in the Pine Barrens. Uh, yes. So can you tell me more about you know what what you are doing there? You know, or what I did? Yeah, yeah did or do? You know, uh, if I, yeah, I'm not doing them now. Yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, uh, mushrooms specifically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, psychotropic mushrooms, uh, micro smaller doses, so I can still function, uh, drive a car, things like that. Right. But enough. I find that. Uh, I actually work in the Department of Neurology at um, at uh, Jefferson. Oh, shoot, I probably shouldn't say this. I'll probably get fired. <laughs> but uh, I'm interested. I mean, there there is research on the effect of psychotropics on uh, on the brain, and I, I in my experience, what I found that it does is I actually have brain damage from being a child, and I have certain things wrong. I don't have a consensual consensual pupillary response. But why to, why is this? I had a lot of head injuries as a kid. Fell on my head, bike accident, fell off the down the basement stairs onto a concrete floor What's wrong so, with you? yeah a lot of a lot of a lot of serious stuff and uh it, it crossed a lot of wires in my brain and what i found out with mushrooms is that it really helps grow new neural pathways and can form connections between parts of the brain that may have been damaged or maybe hadn't previously existed and and the third effect that i've noticed is that it sort of turns up the throughput on the bandwidth of your mind specifically with the sensory system so if I wanted to hear things more clearly, uh, I would go out in the pines and microdose, and I could hear sounds seemed, uh, the frequency range seemed broader. Uh, the colors were more saturated. The smells were more intense. And then that, for whatever reason, I don't know if it's because the neurons are more active or, or more, protons, more prote- uh, proteins are being formed, but I would get back to the city, and those experiences would stay with me for, for a while. So... I, I like the fact that you can give give the mushroom the credit for that because I think a lot of people 
have very positive experiences with the psychedelics, but they're very reluctant to say anything about it because it, because the perception of how people think that they're, I don't know, a dopey hippie or a space cadet or something yeah. like that. But but that, that some people have such, there's such a profound positive effect on them, perhaps changing their view of everything in, in a better way, that it sometimes seems like it, it, it deserves maybe more credit from individuals or maybe more individuals should come forward and say, this has had a profoundly positive effect on me, um, and it seems like it has had that. Yeah, I would for definitely. You, really. I would definitely say it has. I don't know if it's affected my art at all. Uh, I'm sure it has, but not consciously, maybe. But uh, it seems to have yeah. affected your music, which is yeah, your art. Sure. Yeah, uh, I mean, it probably has. Yeah, David and I, would you say that psychedelics have played any role in in your respective lives? Um, I never got into psychedelics. I, uh, but uh, it's never too late. <laughs> is, is there, was there something that kept you away from from doing that? Um, because it seems like if you're an artist, yeah, and there's an experience you can have that won't kill you and well, may benefit you in some way. I, I did. I mean, I think um, I got turned off to drug use in my late teens um, after smoking a lot of pot and it becoming an extremely negative experience. And after that, it was sort of like. Yeah, just it, it, I kind of lost interest in experimenting. Um, so, but you're sitting right next to Ben. Well, know, and he's had this. Yeah, and he's... yeah, and I. <laughs> if my parents are, well, my parents turn it off now. <laughs> no, but like you know, I, I mean, I, I I have some some mushrooms at home, and I'm I'm you know planning on taking them, and you know just kind of. I'm. I mean, I'm always curious. I'm always just like, yeah, I'm, I I have nothing. There's no. There's no stigma against any drug that I that I that I have. It's just, uh, yeah, it, it 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 it's just experiences that I haven't had yet. And, right, but there's a va- yeah. I think there's probably a vast difference in you know shooting up heroin and smoking crack and then taking LSD or, or psilocybin mushrooms. That you know, oh, the, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah there's yeah. a difference. Yeah. <laughs> and Alan, I mean, can you say that have psychedelics played any role in your? Not in the least. No. No, I've never even tried pot. I don't even drink. I just don't have an interest in it, you know. I mean, I, I think for me, I came of age during a time when all of that stuff was, uh, it was quite, I, I lost a few friends uh, to drugs. Um, and a lot of them, you know, but the thing is, they were they were drinking, they were, you know, trying pot and mushrooms and then acid and then on to heroin and, and that was it, you know, they're, you know, gone. And they took the uh, slippery slope into the toilet. Yeah, they kind of did, but um, I, 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 that doesn't necessarily mean, and I don't uh, associate, you know, those more psychedelic drugs with that downward slope. It's just that at the time they were definitely using that stuff in conjunction with the harder stuff, and it was at the, you know, during the eighties, it was kind of hard to tell exactly what the cause and the effect was. And so I decided to just completely circumvent it entirely and just steer clear of it until all of that shook out and we understood why people were using them and how they were using them and which ones were actually addictive. Um, because I, I, you know, at the time I felt like it was like, I, I got a job to do, I got work to do, and I really don't want anything to distract from that. And, you know, for me, the way I would enter an altered consciousness was working on my stuff. You know, whether it be illustrations or writing or anything like that. And that's where I would 
put myself into a sort of translate state. Plus, I had the woods, you know, and that helped me alter my consciousness a little bit too. That having been said, you know, now in hindsight, we have I think we have a better understanding of what these different substances can do. And, um, you know, I'd be very open to uh, trying uh, some of these psychedelics. I, in some ways, I feel like I've been saving them for old age. You know, you know when, it, <laughs> when I didn't have to think about my future. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? yeah. Young man, think about your future. <laughs> I don't have to think about my future anymore. It's behind me. But you're probably mm-hmm. rather comfortable with yourself as well, so that you're probably yeah, not concerned that you're going to go you know, bananas as a result of it and no, be nothing like, rolling well, full for the rest of your life. Well, you know? no, it's nothing like that. Is What I'm worried about is I like it too much because I do have an escapist <laughs> bent. You know, I do. I... I, I, I you know, I mean, even with the Lord Whimsy stuff, all of it, when you look at it, is a form of evasion. And I just, I'm not very much at home in the world as it is. You know, I try to, and it's probably one of the reasons why I've never lived in Philadelphia, is because I don't like having the world that close to me. I like having it at arm's length a little bit. I need an escape route. And for me, the Pine Barrens has always been that, you know. And so... You know, I, I think I'm just, I don't know if I completely trust. I, I didn't, all those years, I wasn't sure if I was going completely able to trust myself to uh, those things. But now that I'm, you know, I'm almost 50, and I feel a, a lot more open to that than I have in the past. I feel like, you know, I've, I've done what I've done, and I, I don't really have as much to lose at this point. I think these experiences tend to be very strong. So I think for, for many people, when, when you have that experience, mm-hmm. it's, six or eight really intense hours and you don't come out of it thinking oh i can't wait to do that again because no there's a lot to, there's a lot to process <clears throat> in that and yeah that's uh, why i advocate microdosing because it still keeps you functional and i i did ha- i have had intense psychedelic experiences and they are just as you say it's it's something that you don't aren't it's quick not to an entirely pleasant yeah. move no it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't self-trans and you, you are transforming your consciousness and that to me is like that that's the one tool i have i don't you know it's like you know a lot of what i do you know i i i make my my work with my head not so much my hands i'm not the most technically talented person so a lot of most of my talent is in my my ability to conceive of things and that draws from my consciousness so for me that's something that i up to this point was something i was a little bit leery of tinkering with too much um, that having been said, I realized that now is, I've kind of reached a point where I really do need to crack that egg. You know, I need the to cosmic kind of, egg. Yeah, I need to. I need to. I think I need to expand my experience, and it's something that I've been setting aside for myself for a long time, and it's something that I've been wanting to explore because I do have that. You know, it's like I'm an, I have an escapist bent, but I also love to explore. And, you know, I've been to the outback in Australia, I've been to Africa, I mean, I've been all of these places and I got a real high off of that, but now that my circumstances are much more modest and I can't necessarily afford to go all over the world. Now you got to go into inner space Yeah, I got to go, I got to go inward. Yeah, I have to go inward because I'm, I'm, I'm going bonkers and I'm, I'm probably mildly depressive and I have never been diagnosed and I need some sort of relief, and I'm hoping that... I'll give you a hug be. later. Yeah, yeah. surely <laughs> help. <laughs> surely help. But, but, yeah, I need, I need something. In, yeah. in the stage that you're in with the, with the documentary now, uh, you had mentioned at the screening that you were probably going to try to procure funds from outside sources. Yeah, well, we've been talking about that for a while, doing some sort mm-hmm. of uh, crowdfunding. And, um, Are you comfortable with 
with going forward and doing that? And I mean, do you have to? I have spend... to. I still have to get comfortable with it. I need to. Have, I need a. I need a plan. You know, I need like a more. Uh, I need a timeline that I kind of feel comfortable with because really, in the beginning of the film. You know, when I started this, I kind of had some sort of abstract ideas. Like, oh, I'll do this for a year. I didn't even know what it was. Um, and I don't think any of us knew what it was. Yeah, and I don't think we knew what it was until, like, maybe time. recently. Um, but, uh, so to do a crowdfunding kind of thing, like, early on, I mean, we talked about it, but you really kind of have to, like, have pretty solid goals and you're you know you're making promises to people who are giving you actual money do you there. have to come up with prizes like genuine fake jersey devil scat <laughs> or pine cone signed by all well, the filmmakers from the pine back there's so I don't, much there's material. so much yeah i mean I, I i'm an illustrator alan's an illustrator we have tons of recorded music um there's writing there's like there's so much candles there's there's <laughs> there's beautiful mithras candles 100 <laughs> percent beeswax <laughs> no yeah gretchen does pressings there's yeah gretchen that. does pressings like i mean it's, it's, it's such a i can leave voicemail messages for people oh it's a fish it's a message. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah we're, we're talking about you know doing that i think that's kind of the next phase because you know, it's it's gotten to a certain point where even if I can technically do the post production myself, I've I've really kind of not had a lot of other hands in the filmmaking process outside of the the music and consultation kind of thing. But um, there is something to be said for film being a collaborative process and to have somebody else who can step in and, and master the audio or somebody else to step in and look at the color correction and, or, you know, even possibly make edits. Um, I would, uh, I, I would invite that in now, which is a hard thing to do. It's like, this is something that I've been working on, you know, like all the editing, all the shooting, like all the sound recording, like basically been doing it all myself for these years. So, you know, at some point, it's kind of good to let go a little bit. And the crowdfunding will kind of help me hire people because I feel like that's important. I don't want to just ask more friends to help. I actually want to like be able to, to pay people to you know do a job. Because you will so, be open to genuine critical scrutiny at some point. And oh, it's, I'm, it's I'm very be more open discerning to it. Yeah. People um, in it. Yeah, yeah. I, that, that's kind of one of the things that's been kind of nerve-wracking as an artist is like you don't as an artist you don't want to show fin unfinished work you know that's kind of like you know you're really putting yourself like you're really exposing yourself showing unfinished work um because generally even like in freelance you know video production you show a client unfinished work all they're going to see are the unfinished parts <laughs> like they're always going to comment on the things you haven't done or the things that they think are wrong and so you even say to an audience, well, this is unfinished, it's an invitation to say, like, oh, well, here's what you should do. Um, and that's, sometimes I can pull some gems out of that, but you really kind of have to, like, filter it and, like, not be sensitive about it. And, you know, and but to be able to show an unfinished work to a group of people who you really respect their judgment and their opinion which has been great that I've had these people to, to work off with and, you know, had get their feedback. 
but at some point you kind of need to like have somebody who's hasn't been so involved in the project you can see it from outside yeah. eyes and, and and give me feedback and then you know tell me it's like okay the film's too long i get it so like <laughs> <laughs> i was going to tell you the film's too long <laughs> no, no ben did you do you want to be able to take the music to live to two screenings and perform it live i think that is a strength of this project is that uh, the musicians we've all been involved for so long and uh, we're such a tight crew uh, with the filmmaker and that we could really, this could be a powerful piece to go to two festivals and perform live. And uh, I think that festivals these days uh, need, are, are looking for live events. So it's some, I think that's one of our strengths is, is the ability to have a live show. And even to, if they if wanted to change the edit slightly uh, or maybe improvise some things, it, the show does change a little bit each time. Uh, you know, just because it's the nature of having a live musical act. Yeah, I mean, I do uh, film screenings, exempt films, and then on my own. And uh, I think that one thing that tends to draw in a lot more people is when there is something that is performative or interactive, because it's hard to bring people into sometimes to see a film. A little bit easier because you've got something new, but and I'm showing a lot of older things that people can watch on video. Uh, although some of the stuff's never been released on video, but when there was an element, another element brought in, um, I was involved with the Valerie project, and yeah. I think the thing that worked for that was that you know, here's this Czech film that very few people have seen, but here are all these musicians who people know. That was the Espers, right? It was half or, of the Espers. Well, and, yeah, yeah. And, those were the guys that started the compound that we were talking yeah, about. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I know okay, all okay. of the... Okay. I, mean, I don't like to throw myself in. <laughs> oh, okay, much, yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, that, yeah uh, so that... Yeah. In a Valerie project thing would draw a lot of people because some people would come because they knew these musicians, they knew, you know, the Espers, they knew for Saxa and they knew all the other bands. And then some people knew the film, some people knew neither, but it drew in different groups of people and I think that that allowed for, to have bigger events and to be taken, although it was a pain in the ass because they had to move all of the equipment. Uh, yeah. Mary had a, you know, yeah. size concert harp that needed its own oh, band. Mary, yeah, yeah. she just played difficult. it. Out in the pines with us, she's wonderful. Uh, we've talked about taking the show on the road, yeah. and uh, I really wish there was a clearer uh, path towards that. I, I've often thought that if there was a sort of a festival tour you could do, that would be great. Uh, I yeah, know. I mean, there's a lot of questions like whether there were, we're still going to be making additions, whether there'll be uh, a version that has the music recorded for some festivals, and then other festivals will get the live thing. But it's it's really kind of something that we have to kind of we need to do a little bit more research. None of us are really in the film world so much. I've never had a film that went to festivals, like a you know one, but like it's uh, it's kind of it's a different territory. And then this project, um, it it doesn't follow the you know standard trajectory as you know of a documentary film. So you know the hope is that yeah, there's. You know, there's there's a buzz, and we start getting invitations. But um, yeah, but to tour with the band and the film and all that, I mean, it, it really means yeah, festivals never pay usually. Right, right. So that's, well, that makes oh, it I that didn't much know that. Good. Okay. Well, yeah. So well, the festivals are all about losing money, not making money. No, <laughs> festivals usually never pay. Yeah. No, they don't. They don't pay. Then. But I. But there are like artists like um, Sam Green. Um, he, you know, he, he does these live documentaries with, you know, Yola Tango and, you know, he, he'll go on tour with the band and he'll get paid to do these things. And his, he does go to film festivals and he does get invitations. I suspect, kind of like, 
I suspect like kind of the path we've been on is how it will continue is that we'll discover that, oh, we need to do this ourselves. And then we just will. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you probably have to, in effect, book a tour. Like, film yes, festivals are right. kind of scattered at different times of the year. Well, so far, I mean, uh, yeah. I, David's done an incredible amount of work um, doing a lot of this. Right. This, is, this is a huge DIY. Well, Middle of Nowhere yeah. was, I mean, that, I mean, that was, that was an event that had a music element and 15 visual artists and the show with a live performance out in... White's Bog, which is a 3,000-acre um, cranberry farm, historic cranberry farm and birthplace of the blueberry, a commercial blueberry out in the Pine Barrens. And so this was a, a project that I produced as a way of like exhibiting this work in, within a context. So that event itself was part of the larger project. And the event was a great success. And I was really quite surprised to see that many people came out. And people left the city of Philadelphia mm -hmm. and yeah. went to rural New Jersey yeah. For, I, think it know, was I can't like, get people to fucking leave their house to go to another neighborhood sometimes for events. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was half and half. I mean, I think there were there were a lot of people who were from the Pine Barrens who were there because I keep in like close, close contact with a lot of like locals and like they are people who I've been communicating with for years now. Yeah. Um, so I, I've the the project itself has built a following not only with like you know arty friends in Philadelphia and musician, but there are like locals who are like actual paying actual Yeah, I'm sure if you're attention. in the movie, yeah. you bring your whole family because you know, you yeah. would be in there and, that, and it's that, your community on the screen. Yeah, so how do you take that and make the next step in social media and whatnot yeah. to like reach out to other communities elsewhere, like in the country? And uh, Yeah, I think it just, it just out. builds, you know, I, yeah. um, you know, getting back to what you were saying before, it's like, yeah, how do you, how do you let people know that this is a film that they want to see even if they have never heard of the pine barrens or actually have no interest in the pine barrens and so it's it's really just going to be a matter of just building some kind of like buzz and there is social media i mean we have like thousands of followers on facebook and that's kind of yeah it seems like all of the the feedback that i've seen the the project get has been overwhelmingly positive so it certainly has to work to your favor that what you've created well not that many people have seen it yet but i mean among those who have <laughs> seen it right <laughs> They just love your photos on Instagram. It helps that you're an amazing still photographer. Um, yeah, what was the question? Well, yeah. I think that the, the response that I've seen yeah. to it, I mean, I was there in an audience, a yeah. rather sizable audience of people who I could feel were very responsive to what the three of you and all of the other people involved in the project were putting out. Yeah. You know, the, and a lot the of audience has to do with, with the experience. I mean, I, I don't think the film, I, I don't think I can take as much credit just like, I hope that the film kind of creates an experience on its own that could equal being out in the woods with the crickets and the full moon and the music and, and all that mm -hmm. stuff. I mean, like that's people are also are res responding to no, the yeah. moment and the event and like you know being out there on like the most like perfect night of the year. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah. So hopefully the film gets to the point where they can have like some kind of experience that that rivals that um and i but it's still a work in progress i personally don't feel like it's there yet um but uh it's getting there do you think that you you will have a a definitive feeling when you've hit that point no 
<laughs> yeah, I don't know how that. I, mean, no, I, mean, I don't know how that would be indicating like you would, uh, but you, you would say you, I don't think you ever do. I mean, I don't think that's healthy even to like say like I made the perfect work. I think like at some point you just say like this this project is everything that it was ever going to be. Yeah. And this is like I have to stop. I have to move on. You can't be like Giacometti where you're like pulling the sculpture apart and working on it so much that it just falls apart. There is a certain point where you just acknowledge that you have to move on, and, and it is what it is. Uh, yeah, I, I feel it that way, but there will ultimately be a final cut that, say, goes out to distributors or whatnot, and, but there will also be other versions, and, and I, that's what I really like about this project is that there's just this huge archive of all this amazing material that we can sort of mine and, and figure out a way to, to, to include in some way, maybe in the final, final, uh, diaspora when we send it out to yeah, the world. I, I hope that you manage to actually get that out to people, uh, because, I mean, one of the things when I was working with, with Valerie and it was all these live performances that I really wanted to see the thing committed to tape and put out mm -hmm. as, you know, records and, and CDs and see it released in the, on a disc or something because I didn't want all of this, this creative body of work to just sort of dissipate into the air and if you've got all of this material, yeah. you know, hopefully it's going to find eyes and ears at some point, even beyond the sort of more circumscribed film, you know, all this. Yeah. We, we have a lot of stuff, but like I said, I mean, documentation is like, even something like that, because like you're dealing with like something that's like extremely hard to shoot. Like you have like musicians in the dark with like a bright film. And it's <laughs> like yeah, it's for one reason or another. Like documentation of the of the performances has always been uh, always been a bit of a problem. So it's I have bits and pieces, but nobody unless they were actually following the like, the, the process is is ever going to be able to, to have that experience. Mm -hmm. So it's. Uh, you know that's unfortunate, but there's there's something there's there's a bit of an archive. Do you get a little scratching in the back of your head about a, a future project that's you know whispering in your ear upon the completion of this one? Um, it's not going to be a documentary. I say that. <laughs> be careful. But, you know, I I you know I, I, right now I don't want to work on a documentary. I don't even want to work on film right now. I really want to like I really kind of want to make paintings or sculpture or just like kind of step away from it for a little while but <clears throat> but I've said that before and you know I just kind of I just end up doing you know I'll just move on to the next project and like you know just because I said that it'll probably be another like five year documentary so <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd actually like to hear from, from all, all three of you uh, Ben if you want to say well, you know like in the wake of the Poseidon do, is there something that you think you'd want to put your your focus on yeah, there's there's actually other projects that we're all working on that I, I just because we're all uh, multidisciplinary I think and, and or just we just you know the the pine the pine the energy from the pines goes bouncing out into other things and then comes back and uh, I would I there's projects that he that David's worked on like installation video pieces that I'd like to contribute music to I've got my own second album that I'm trying to finish uh, I would like to some sometime dive back into the archives of the ruins. Uh, we've actually had members of the ruins that have moved away that were there early on. There's one or two other people that uh, some of the stuff they added was interesting. Uh, so yeah, there's certainly certainly other projects. But as far as specifically, what can I say? Uh, I want Dave to go back to Iceland and take me with him. <laughs> and uh, there was this great idea of 
the ruins sort of may, we don't even have to change your name but we can just go up there and we can live score the northern lights and for me <laughs> that would be a great project do you need a gaffer or someone that really doesn't do much of anything so if anyone in Reykjavik is listening yeah, need, it, bring us to your town you need a, a, a light yeah. wrangler yeah, <laughs> that's great. And Alan, do you, uh, in the wake of this, uh... Uh, I'd like to, I'd like to pump some of the, uh, the members of the Rooms Friendship Orchestra's personal projects. Like I know that uh, uh, Gretchen Losey and uh, her Thomas, her significant other Thomas. I was trying to figure out how to term that. Uh, <laughs> they, they have uh, this wonderful, oh, the Carol Cleveland? Carol Cleveland sings. sings. Yeah, Thomas. Carol Cleveland Spinto sings. Band. Yeah, yeah, put this fan, yeah, Spinto Band. You put this wonderful album together right now. It's this wonderful, like, uh, sort of like Sparks meets Elliot Jack No or something. It's fantastic. <laughs> it's the perfect way of putting yeah, it. Yeah, it's a wonderful little album. And then you, uh, I know that Laura Baird, she and her sister Meg Baird are going on the road this week for uh, the Baird Sisters. They just put out a new record, right? Can and Laura also later this winter has a solo album coming out on Bada Bing Records uh, in addition to this. Um, so they, they have uh, some of that. I don't know if Jesse's got anything. Jesse's uh, got some things cooking. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure specifically what uh, he just... Okay. But uh, I'm often just amazed at the stage looking around me and I just feel like I'm not worthy a lot of the time. And no, John, John Pettit's got oh, John Callow Pettit. Hill. Yeah, he, yeah. His, John is in a band called Callow Hill, which is yeah, a great right. outfit, great rock outfit, and he's always doing stuff. He works at the Temple Urban Archives, too. You can go and see him there. Very yeah. good. And the amazing thing is, is, like, individually, I know we've said this earlier, but, like, individually, like, everyone's music is, is way different from each other and from Ruins. So the the fact that you take in take all these different ingredients and put them together and have like such an amazing distinctive sound of mm -hmm. both electronic and acoustic and traditional and non traditional instruments just kind of coming together and making the ruins of friendship, um, yeah, no, it's it's pretty phenomenal. Yeah, I can't wait to see all of that kind of committed to vinyl or or you know just to you know just like a, a whole body of work Me too. musically. Yeah, you know, it would be beautiful. Even if it's an online archive or something like that, I would love to kind of flip through that. It'd be fantastic. Yeah. Well, super. I guess that, that essentially uh, sums up the experience. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, thank you so much. No, yeah, thank, thank you, you. Three for thank talking you. to me. I think, uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.